this, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, people? Welcome back to Rebounding Safety. Today is another different podcast. It's me on someone else's podcast. This one's called Safety Leaders Podcast. Let's jump, jump into the intro. I'll tell you some more about it. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk Well, what's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is a YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin so if you're new here hit subscribe hit follow hit bells all that other things because they're really good on the algorithm today we're talking to today we're not talking to anyone actually today they're talking to us we were on another podcast called podcast no we weren't <laughs> we were on a podcast called safety leaders now um so really it's kind of a loose but narrow scope basically people that um that are doing something interesting um something tangible in safety um they get them on and talk about something right but it's always kind of things that people are actually doing so it's not really kind of academic or theoretical it's what they're doing so we kind of got on with nothing really pre-prepared we're just kind of spitballing it and we end up talking really about do the systems you have have impact? And I thought this is a really good conversation. Joe's got some banging points. Um, so I thought you'd enjoy it. So hopefully you do enjoy it. Hopefully you like a little bit of a change and have, you know, me being interviewed. It's kind of, I quite enjoy it. Um, so yeah, that's today's podcast. Before we jump into it, quick shout out to our sponsor, Paradigm Human Performance. If you don't know who they are by now, then um, you've clearly been skipping the adverts, which, you know, we all do it whatever but uh, don't, don't do it this time don't don't do it this time right just listen in this one time paradigm human performance are human organizational performance experts they've worked in nuclear aviation and so many different industries and they are experts at bringing human organizational performance into your workplace so if you're in that place right now where you think do you know what i want a bit hop then they are the place for you. So go check out Paradigm Human Performance plus Shane Bush is the full name, uh, website in the description below, email in the description below, phone number in the description below. And whilst you're on the website, don't forget to check out Learn an Organization webinar, which is an outstanding resource and runs every, every other week now. Go check them out. Don't forget to follow me on LinkedIn. It's where I'm most prominent, but we are trying to improve our other platforms as well. So come follow us on social media. Without further ado, let's get into my chat with the amazing Joe Meadows on Safety Leaders Now. Hi there, this is Joe Meadows and welcome to Safety Leaders Now, the show where we cut through the noise and identify the strategies and tactics that today's top safety leaders use to keep their teams safe. On today's episode, we've got James McPherson. If you're listening to this, you're probably already aware of James and his work at Rebranding Safety and Project Meledium, which I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly, but anyway, we'll save that for, for a later date. I think in this episode, you know, James and I, we keep things a little higher level than uh, some of our other episodes, but he has some some really interesting perspectives. I think we dove into some things that I really enjoyed. I got a huge kick out of this conversation, and I hope you will as well. So without further ado, here's our latest episode with James McPherson. James, can you uh, introduce yourself and kind of let us know what your current role is and what your company does. 
Thank you very much for having me, Joe. Um, nice to see you again. My name is James McPherson. I have fingers in many pies. So I primarily run a consultancy company called Risk Fluent, which is a startup fresh off the boat. We launched this year. We kind of soft launched it last year, but we, we launched this year. But for the last three-ish years, I've been running a podcast and a YouTube channel called Rebrand and Safety. So most people actually know me from Rebrand and Safety. Within all of that, I've been a safety professional, working across various different industries for 10 years-ish. And... Prior to that, I was many, many things. It took me a while to work out what I actually wanted to do. Uh, I was a bit of a teenage layabout for a long time. So, yeah, and then I also run a company with a separate company called Project Meletium with a business partner. And Project Meletium is a kind of mastermind community, like a, a, de a professional development community for people working in safety and risk management. So that essentially is just a group of safety professionals. We have weekly calls. We have monthly philosophy discussions. We have monthly book club, two monthly book club, and we do quarterly events and loads of other stuff as well so that's a membership but my company is a consultancy the podcast and the youtube channel so you you, you mentioned so risk fluent now safety consultancy that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people so can you help help us understand what what specifically like what what are you consulting on and, and what value are, are you providing so risk fluent is essentially like a a statement piece. So we, I kind of call the company an operational risk consultant because I see safety as one of the risks that comes from operations. That's how we look at it. There's a long-term vision in that, but there's no point bogging us down on that. At the moment, we are a health and safety consultancy and we essentially do two types of service. We have technical services, or what I, how I call it, technical services. So that's your normal safety stuff, like how, where we're going to lose our fingers or not lose our fingers, what's going to fall on our head and how do we manage that. Then we have the what we call the transformational side of the company, which is the more We've got a good foundation and we want some cultural change stuff. Now, I think it's important to note just quickly that those two are not mutually exclusive because sometimes I'll have a customer that has no technical understanding. All machines are going to take all fingers and it's just really, really bad. But I don't go in and go, oh, it's technical first and then it's cultural. Like they're, they're one in the same, but we we split the, the package, not packages, but we split the services because it's just really hard to describe what we do for people on a website. So it's kind of like a lot of the time a customer rings up and they're like, I think this is what we want. And we're like, actually, we're going to start here, for example. But ultimately, we do technical services, cultural services is like the two ways to describe it. Okay, so maybe as a as a fellow entrepreneur, I'm going to workshop this with you a little bit while we're here, just, just oh, for no. my own entertainment. So not to describe what it is that you do, but can you help me understand on the technical side and on the cultural side, what is the value I would get from you as a, as a potential client? So if I hired you as, on, on the technical side, what value could I expect to receive rather than like what it is you're going to do to deliver that value? I always try to use this one liner of like, no matter what type of service you do with us, whether it's technical or cultural, I always try to use this example. If we had like another Grenfell type situation in 
the UK, whether it was an explosion, a fire, a machine lost an arm, I would I try to say to all kind of managing directors, owners that what we try to do is not give you a false sense of security, which I think a lot of current safety does at the moment. I want to give you a 100% backable sense of confidence that you see something on the news and you wake up and you go, that won't be my site. Instead of going, ooh, that won't be one of mine, surely. Like you turn around and you go, I am 99% sure that won't be one of mine. In a nutshell, that's how I try to describe what we're trying to deliver is a tangible sense of confidence, not a false sense of confidence. Excuse me. And so for that tangible, like what, what would be the indicators in place that for me as an executive who's gone and hired you, where I would be able to say, oh, because I'm seeing X, Y, and Z, I have that tangible sense of confidence. What, what would be in place there that would help me understand that I'm... I, again, I'm not, I haven't hired this consultancy who's who's blowing a bunch of hot air, but that I, I do have that real tangible confidence. What what would I see that would give me that value? Ultimately, Joe, like that is the big question in safety because we we have for so long been like, we don't have any accidents, then we must be safe. And then all of a sudden, Deepwater Horizon happened and we were all like, oh shit. You mean they were there given a safety award? on the day that it exploded and they'd had X amount of years, no incidents. We were all kind of like, how do we measure safety? So for me, what we're trying to talk about, whether again, whether it's cultural or technical, it doesn't matter, but it's one of the most important things I think nearly all companies can do is understand where are you getting those signals and stories from your workplace? Right. So we, I think near miss reporting is such a great example because we're so terribly bad at it, in my experience. Essentially, what a near miss is, is like maybe not a weak signal because something's happened. It's probably more like a medium signal, right? So in like resilience engineering, they talk about like weak signals, things that are like a little indicator that something could be an opportunity or or a risk, right? Near miss is probably like a medium signal because something nearly happened, hence you spotted it, right? So we do loads of this near miss reporting, loads of paperwork, and so many times I'm like, so I was on a site the other day. Here's a good, here's a good example, actually. I was on a site the other day, and I, they'd had a meeting every day, and they're like, how many near misses have we had? And they have, and they write on the board, four near misses, right? I could walk through that site and be like, oh, I've, I've seen 6,000 near misses already. Because we just we we defined it slightly, so we slightly wrong in my opinion. So maybe it's where we should go. Actually, I've seen a little bit of a weak signal here, not a near miss. Like near miss is also a bit late. So things like that, like getting out on the shop floor and talking and looking and then reacting. So I'd like to see companies that I work with eventually when they're ready measuring how we learn from the workplace so how we picking these things up and how we react into it so this is it's not this like state we're trying to achieve it's this constant state that we are so really how do you measure it is that you feel like you're confident and not only do you feel like you you're confident when somebody you or somebody else really starts to question it then you can come back with some answers. I can sit with anyone that's got risk assessments and I can normally really 
highlight some gaps in reality versus paperwork quite quickly. And I think most good safety professionals can as well. And we, we spoke about risk assessments a lot when you're on my podcast, but, and, and it's a fundamental flaw in a process, but we can do the same with anything, lift plans, instant reporting, you know, there's this work has done work as imagined. So for me, it's, it's, you get a sense of confidence, but it's backable. Like, so you can, you can explain it. So it's not like, Oh, I've got risk assessments. It's like, I've got risk assessments and I know that if I go on the shop floor, I can have a conversation with the workforce as to how we're managing risk and how they're managing risk and their, their level of competency. I, I actually listened to it. I'm, I'm kind of spitballing this, actually. It's developing more in my head the more I talk about it. But I was listening to a, a podcast the other day and this lady was talking from a retail perspective about Slack. So Slack in operations, right? And she said, you need to decide what type of company you are. And she was saying that you're either a supermarket that wants all the products, like all the different versions of, of one type of product. So like 50 different types of tomato sauce, yeah? But there's a trade-off to that. That means that when a customer talks to that uh, employee, they won't have good knowledge of that product because there's too many of them. They can't know, Right. Or do you want to be the type of the type of business where the customer goes, "Hey, hi Joe, I just um, you work here, right? Yeah, yeah, I work here. I just um, wonder what tomato sauces you've got." And they go, "Ah, oh, we've got two types of tomato sauce. What are you making? I'm making a, I don't know, fish and chips, <laughs> right? Because because British. And yeah, um, yeah. and then <laughs> on, on brand, like, nice work." <laughs> so oh for fish and chips this tomato sauce is definitely the best one because there's only two or three products so they've got loads of slack to be able to focus on it so for me if we if we flip that and put it into safety it's that it's the slack in the operations that if i talk to as a shop floor and i say how are we managing the safety or the risk of this process? They can turn around and say, ah, that's because we're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing this, we're doing that. Not that they turn around and go, because we've got a risk assessment and a standard operating procedure. Like it's them being able to turn around because they've got the slack to do so and have that conversation, that valuable conversation. That's ultimately where we need to get to. Does every customer get that? Depends on, you know, what they want where they are in their mature maturity journey. But ultimately the end goal for me, a CEO, an MD, an FD can go on the shop floor and have a valuable conversation about how we're managing the risk in that moment. So do you think that's, that's kind of a, a situation of, I, I know one of the other uh, episodes we recorded, I was speaking to Bill Cobb and, and Bill was talking about kind of doing less better. Is that kind of what you're referring to as Slack? Like that, that it's about reducing quantity and increasing quality and, and focusing on the things that, that we need to do that really are driving value and, and cutting out a little bit of the fluff? Definitely cutting out of fluff. I think there's a lot of decluttering that needs to go in organizations. Like, like are we delivering value? So I always use this example when I've done a couple of keynotes or when I'm talking to people of when I was trying to get people to do a forklift pre-use check, right? So it was absolute fucking nightmare to try and get these lads to do this forklift track, right? So they, it was classic safety. It was like tick, 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 tick. And then you'd get on and be like, the seatbelt's not working. Why have you ticked off the seatbelt? Like, so it was just this constant battle all the time. And ultimately, we came to the point where we, we tried everything, different types of checks and app and loads of stuff. We got rid of the checkbook. We got rid of the checkbook and we 
we spent a lot of time on increasing their competency. So we we kind of took a bit of a a high performing teams approach. We increased their competency. We drilled it a lot more. We we're having more conversations around around the the critical safety points of a truck and stuff like that. But then when I say that, people freak out, right? They go, oh, but how do we prove it? Where's the record keeping going? And, and, and we do have to do that, right? We've all got insurers, the HSC turn up tomorrow. And there's the easy way to check. It's like jump on the truck and check it yourself. Like go and have a look. And like that's that confidence thing for me. Like I want a CEO or my customers to turn around and go, you know, someone goes to them, how do I know you're checking the trucks? Go out and look at my trucks. Go out and look, trust me. Go out and look, um, talk to my guys and girls on the shop floor. But okay, we need a record. So what we did was we had this handover process with our in-house maintenance team, and that was recorded. So they had a diary. They recorded everything they do, and they, they did that anyway for, for our planned preventative maintenance program so that we could track all of our maintenance. So they were doing that. So there was no need for the, the shop floor people to record the check. So we kind of de- decluttered it because it was bringing no value other than the fact that we were just counting loads and loads of paperwork, but it was impacting the value of the check. So we got rid of that. Mm. We decluttered that. And I think that's a great example. I didn't even know what decluttering meant when we did this. We were just winging it, and it seemed to work. So that's a really good example. I think there's loads of that. There's loads of paperwork. There's loads of systems that really deliver no value whatsoever, but take up a hell of a lot of time. But ultimately as well, I think there's an interesting point in in that phrase, doing less better, which I really like. And I think for safety, that makes a lot of sense, makes a lot of sense. Does it make a lot of sense for a whole company? Probably not. Like if you went to Amazon, I'd like you to do less better. They'd be like, our model is do more quicker. Like that, that's our literal sales model. And if I got a contract at Amazon, I think I would ship myself because right, these guys, their model is get it to the door yesterday. So there's those trade-offs and conflicts. So I think we need to we need to go, is safety do less better? Probably. I think that's a really good way to look at safety. But there is a trade-off to that in that doing less better means we're doing less. And from a commercial point of view, that might clash with the purpose. So I think another thing uh, that I would have, another conversation I would have with either someone we are mentoring or a customer is where does safety sit within the purpose of the organization? So how do I contribute to that? I, I, I have I interviewed him yet? Well, especially with him yesterday, actually, and my internet's been crap, so we canceled it. But I, I'm going to interview the head of safety for Mercedes Formula One in the UK. And there's one thing he's gonna say because I know I told him you need to tell you need to make sure you say that again on the recorded podcast. He's gonna say on his interview he was asked, "How are you gonna bring your ten seconds to the car?" He said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, everyone at everyone at Mercedes Formula One has a job in their has a job to do in their department, and everyone can tell me what how that job brings ten seconds to the car." So he said, how is safety going to bring 10 seconds a car? He had no planning for that question whatsoever. And I was like, what a beautiful question that is. How many times do we ask safety, how do you contribute to the business? So if you're safety for Amazon, how do you contribute to faster, quicker, like more products, whatever their model is? Really hard, but ultimately you've got to do that because that's to justify your existence within the organization. I'm loving that, you, that you're bringing this up because I feel like that has been the most recurring sentiment that, that's been picked up on, on the interviews that we've done so far, you know, trying to, to dissect kind of 
safety leaders in, in large organizations and understanding what makes them successful. And it's that kind of instinct for, for the folks who aren't, you know, again, sort of standing on a soapbox screaming safety needs more respect who these are people who, who have been able to execute within those organizations, get to those roles where ultimately they're having that huge impact. And the one thing that they all say is like, we're here to make money. And it's not about using that as a justification to be lax. It's about saying, yeah. I need to think about this as an executive in the organization and say like, we can't detach ourselves from that, from that reality. And I think maybe the, the alternative parable here or, or anecdote is instead of saying doing less better, it's the slow is smooth and smooth is fast, which I think is, is more uh, palatable maybe to, to, to executives. Do you know, like my, the thing that people get really annoyed that I say all the time, is blanket rules don't work, right? Blanket rules, blanket statements, blanket philosophies, blank, blanket anything doesn't work. A blanket is only good for one thing when it's bloody cold and you want, you want to warm up on the sofa. That's it. So having a blanket approach to everything doesn't work because even in safety, there are some times where safety is not going to be a priority. Like if my director of finance in my company, for example, sat in a office all day long, but they're dealing with like million pounds, hopefully one day they're dealing with million pound deals, right? I don't want them thinking about safety at all. Yeah. I want them thinking about those million pound deals. Don't screw that up, please. Like it's really important to me. But if I've got a consultant on the road who's on site, I don't know, maybe they're up the scaffold in the middle of a building doing some work with, with the shop floor kind of stuff. You know, I want them to be thinking about their safety 100% because they're at the top of the scaffold. So for, for a business that's doing, say, like manufacturing, it's like within your company, so that, that kind of doing less better is very similar to what Eric Honagel, who's, I know we don't want to get academic and I'm not going to get academic, but he's an academic guy and he talks about the thoroughness and efficiency trade-off, which I really like, right? So basically you're either thorough or you're thorough. I always struggle to say that. You're either thorough or you're quick, right? So it's one or the other. You're, you're slow and focused or you're quick and not focused, right? So which one is it? Sometimes in our operations, we need to slow down and we need to focus on safety. Sometimes it's cool for us to just go mega quick, man. So when, when we're in safety, we're trying to design in a process to enable our workers to focus on other stuff. And then sometimes there's parts in a process where they can't focus on other stuff because it's that high risk, because there's a lot of residual risk or, or something like that. So these things like these platitudes like safety first or safety is not number one agenda item. It's like, it doesn't fucking matter if it's at the top of your agenda or not. Cause if you have got a meeting about how we get this order out the door, otherwise this customer leaves and then the business goes bust, please don't talk about safety. Talk about getting this product out the door, obviously safely, but within the framework there, everything has a time and a place. I'll get off my soapbox now, but you know, that, yeah. that stuff really does gets me twitching. But I think part of that, right, is it, part of it is about proportionality. And I think that's actually one of the, you know, you're talking about decluttering and doing less. I think that's, that's where safety professionals have hurt the profession is without that sense of proportionality, you know, you layer process and process and process and all the people who, you know, that translates into 30 or 45 minutes of their workday every day. And they, it's obvious to them that, this isn't truly about managing risk. This is just about, you know, some idea somebody cooked up that that's going to reduce people's sensitivity 
to really care when it does matter. And so I think, you know, for, for, you know, I think we spoke about this before, but one of my biggest kind of things is that the, the fundamental role of a safety professional is about decision guidance. And so if you're going to guide a decision, you need to know what that decision is. You can't, it, it can't be blanket. It can't apply in every scenario because it's, it has to be proportional to the decision being made. So you can guide it in a way that's rational. So I think you gave me that phraseology, that risk guidance, decision guidance. I actually use that now, like all yeah. the time. I turn to people, well, let's not, let's not call a risk assessment a risk assessment. Let's call it guidance. And everyone's like, <gasps> at first, I was like, oh my God, what? Now it's a risk assessment. It was when you did it, but now it's there. It's more like guidance. And at first I don't get it, but when you start to explain it, I was actually in a meeting yesterday and this company had, they basically make massive bits of machinery, right? So they have loads of crane work, internal crane work, loads of crane work. And they're lifting like thousand ton bits of kit and moving them up, down, left, right, but all over the place like loads of written lift plans, right? And I wrote my name in the dust on all of them. And we were doing like these, these kind of cultural, <laughs> we were doing a cultural, we we were being employed in there to do like a cultural kind of behavioral uh, improvement plan and stuff like that. So we spent loads of time just watching, talking to people on the shop floor. And I went around and wrote my name on the first day, wrote my name on the dust of all these lift plans, right? And then I came back two days later, my name was still there, like perfectly written in there. So I was like, okay, now I 100% know no one's touching these. Like it could have just been a really dusty process, but 100% ain't no one touching these. So I was like, okay, cool. I left it like it. And uh, anyway, long story short. So I posed that we'd done a report and we'd, we'd fed it back to him and I had, we had a meeting about the report to have a discussion with the senior leadership team and the the head of ops and the the, the senior supervisor or whatever of ops was in the room and and he was like one of them was like so what i mean what do you want from that james so do you you want our guys to go over and read the lift plans every single time they're going to do a lift like these guys they know how to lift and i'm like yes they do Yes, they do. So do you think they should read those lift plans? He was like, nah, we'd be there all day. I said, yes, exactly that. That's exactly my point. So what is that lift plan then? And he was kind of like, oh, I don't know, it's clutter. I said, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe there is a little bit of clutter to it, but ultimately it's like a form of guidance. So we might use that to train people, induct people, use it for their first time. Maybe you've done it for a long time. You think, actually, I can't remember how to do this but it's really static. It's not dealing with that dynamic nature of work every day. But we also had no process or no training or no competency or no principles, which was where we got to in the end, in the workforce. So people actually doing the lifts, they weren't thinking about the lift at all, right? Mm. So we were. I asked every single person I spoke to when we were doing this assessment, the same question, I asked them loads of questions, but one question I asked them, what's safety like here? And they all turned, every single one of them turned around and said, really safe. I was like, okay, cool. Why is it, why is it really safe? Because it's really tidy. The housekeeping, everyone spoke, and it was a really tidy site. Everyone spoke about housekeeping. Even though these guys are lifting pieces of the kit, that if you dropped it, it would squish you like an ant underneath your boot, right? Not one of them said, yeah, because I always think about my chains or the, the crane controls. Or Not one of them spoke about how, the, how we lift. So I said, and that is a lift plan. Those guys go in, okay, I'm about to lift this. Where am I going? How does it move? So that's like what many people would call a dynamic risk assessment. Replace lift plan for risk assessment. The same applies. They weren't talking about it. So 
these kind of lift plans became risk or decision or process guidance, whatever we want to call them. And we advised to them that we need to give people principles of lifting, of how to go through that process and be mindful of the risks they're about to do. So many companies I have that conversation with, so many. I think that's super insightful because that identification to that company of saying, you're calling this a lift plan as if it is, you know, somebody could come in externally and assume you create this plan for every single lift you do. When the reality is it's, you know, some dusty laminated piece of paper. Yeah. And I think you identifying that, Hey, in this case, what, what this actually is, is, you know, in situations where the decision is not clear. So you've either not done it before or, you know, some scenario has changed that, that it's a reference point. I think that's a great example of one of the things that I'm most passionate about, which is that I just think there is, I, I think the safety profession, workplace risk profession is so, I don't know if there is a professional group more rife with cognitive dissonance around <laughs> simply yeah. just not being, not being on intellectually <laughs> honest about what these things are. And so if we said, Hey, this is what, this is actually what this document is. We're not just going to go by the sort of the terms that everybody uses, but we're going to say, oh, what this is doing is we, what we actually want this to do is take a new person and make sure that they're familiar with the process before they do it. Well, if yeah. you were honest about what that was, you could actually set up a process to measure that and ensure that that was happening when it mattered. Yeah. And you would allow people to not care in those other cases. But if what you're saying is, oh, this is a lift plan and that's how we tick that box, then and then people wonder, you know, again, I, I feel like so much of, let's say, safety media is is people on a soapbox talking about safety, not getting any respect. And it's like, well, you're not acting in a way that me as an ex like an operational executive, I'd be like, this is the most fluffy BS I've ever seen. Like, why would I waste my time with you here? So I want to I want to circle back, actually. Yeah, this is a good jumping off point. Let's 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 give this segue a try. Earlier, you were talking about you know, one of the things you're looking for uh, when you come in as a consultant is kind of signals and stories. And in that, you know, you gave the example of coming into a company that had six near misses that they were happy with, and you could see 6,000. Or, you know, you gave the example of people who are doing a forklift check that that wasn't doing anything until you could scrap it. And so what I'm curious about here is, to me, those are all signals. A near miss is a signal, a forklift check is allegedly a signal. But yeah. I think there's an opportunity to talk about signal quality and nobody if we're treating near miss as a binary value but we have no agreed upon definition of universally what does this mean you know I, I guess for me as somebody more on on the tech side of things this is to me the fundamental failing of health and safety professionals or, or let's say the health and safety intellectual space is yeah. that we have a lot of arguments around the value of certain things but the definitions of what those things are differ from person to person. So, yeah. so it kind of, the whole argument is moot. So do you yeah. think there's an opportunity to, how do we define the value or the quality of what it, like what a near miss is telling us? How do we understand that across organizations? Cause I think for you in a consultancy perspective, you're able to establish a common definition, you know, across the companies that you work with. Yeah. But then if you go to a third party company and they say, we have 4 million near misses, then you, you might have concerns in the other direction to say like your definition might be a bit broad. And, and in that case, again, the, the conversation falls apart. So yeah. do you think, where do you see the opportunities for us to establish a little bit more commonality here? Like where, 
where's that baseline database? Who should be responsible for putting that together? Okay, there's a lot there to unpack. My approach when there is no universal definition is like within our company, we need to have our definition. So like, and I think near miss is a really good example of that. If anyone's talking to me about near misses, I say, okay, cool. What, how do you define an image? And I've had this conversation so many times. How do you define an image? I remember having this exam, this conversation with um, a guy that run a team of on the road engineers. And he was like, James, my biggest risk is driving at work. And I'm like, okay, cool. And he's like, and one thing I want to get, I want to improve on James near miss reporting. I said, okay, cool. That's fine. You know, not a fan of the title, but we'll go with that. What is a near miss? And he was like, well, I always forget the exact example, but what he described was 100% incidents. Like, so he was like, oh, if I bump my car on like a parking bollard, but, you know, no one's really hurt themselves. I was like, but you've, you've damaged the car. That's an incident. You know, and it was examples like that. And he was like, oh, yeah. So you're moaning at your guys because you're not, they're not reporting near misses, but you, you don't even know what a near miss is yourself. So I was like, so you've driven on the motorway quite a lot of times. You said, yeah. I said, how many times there's some, we call them dickheads in the UK. How many times does some dickhead drive past you at 100, 120 miles an hour? Right. And just remind me of a TikTok I saw the other day that was like, if you get someone like that, there's an American that goes, I know you're Canadian. And I, I know I'm not putting you in the same box, but they, and the TikTok. Not offended. Not offended. And it was like American and it goes fast. Like, oh my God, he was going so fast. <laughs> the British person, the car goes zoom. And the guy just goes, dickhead. That is literally what we do. That was so true. Anyway, sorry. I just thought it was so funny. So yeah, I was like, is that a near miss? And he was like, oh, James, if we said that was a near miss, we'd be reporting that all the time. I said, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do we want that? Well, no, we don't want that. Why don't we want it? Because nothing we can do with it. Okay, we're going, we're getting somewhere now. So to come back to your next point is how do we define the value of these things is what you do with it, in my opinion. Like, it's not valuable if you don't do anything. You can have a really beautiful brand new hammer, right? But if you don't need to hit any nails in the wall, there's no point fucking having it. So, like, it's not valuable to you at all. So for me, where's the value is what you do with it. That, that's how I look at it. I'm glad you gave that example because, you know, for me, kind of in my professional capacity, we talk a lot about near misreporting. And what we often talk about is the, or some companies we work with, they define a near miss as like what we would just call kind of like a safety workplace observation. Like you see an opportunity where maybe something could go awry. And I can see a world where you'd kind of say this is a, a near miss, but I know in, in our definition, that's we want to have that signal be separate for, from near misses so that we can have a wider funnel of the signals that we receive. And for us, you know, if, if you're going to state that you have a near miss, it runs you through the exact same flow in our software as if you had an incident, because the way we define it is like you got up to the edge and you, and you didn't go there. So mm -hmm. we should treat this as if it's an incident so that we can, we can benefit from, from the, the fact that, okay, there were no consequences in this case, but all the kind of factors were present, you know, the, the spanner falls off the ducting and lands beside you. Well, you just as easily could have been standing under that tool and it could have smacked you in the head. So let's treat it as if you did. And I'm not even going to sit here and say that's the perfect definition, but I think it's the fact that those are, that there is that kind of that space that, it's such that a, underlines a lot of our conversations. I mean, it's interesting because I was working with a different customer 
these last few weeks um, who are in a really, really bad place. And the first day I was with them, I was in the office, you know, getting to know the, the main person that was going to be our main contract uh, contact. And he's like, oh, James, you come to our morning operations meeting. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that'd be a really good insight. First red flag for me, safety is always at the top of our agenda. And uh, I'm like, okay, cool, right. If you back that up, I, I don't really care. Like, okay, I'm happy with that if it's backed up. But like, I just, I've already made my point on being at the first agenda anyway. So anyway, long story short. And he's like, any near misses? And all of them were like, yeah, we've had uh, four, four near misses today, three near misses, two near misses. And they're all like, yeah, Bob like tripped over or or this little thing happened, right? And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. I'm not going to say whether it's good or bad right now because I don't know the context. I, I, I don't know enough context to justify whether that was valuable or not. The conversation seemed okay. It was like reasonably valuable. They were talking about fixing a problem. I was like, okay, I like that, right? Mate, I get to freaking site and I'm like, you're talking about people tripping on this stone out here. I'm like, that machine would not pass any, any type of inspection. Like if the HSC turned up tomorrow, they're shutting that down. Like I go to another machine, three e-stops broken, no e-stop on this long conveyor belt. The structural integrity of this raised building that they were in, I'm like, it's been hit by an excavator about six million times. The roof was caving in. I'm like, man, we're over here talking about near misses. Motherfucker, you can't even deal with everyday normal work. Like I don't care about your near misses right now. And, and I just think, like, where's the value right now talking about near misses? Like, we were talking about near misses of, like, things that were nearly an incident. When you've got things that are 100% really wrong, like, really wrong, you're going to lose fingers, you're going to lose... But because no one's touching it or nearly touched it and gone, oh, that's a near miss, let's talk about that, we weren't doing anything about it. And we had check after they do defect checks every morning and just every day, e-stock's not working, e-stock's not working, e-stock's not working. I'm like, stop wasting your time talking about near misses. Let's fix these freaking machines, please. And so sometimes near misses is good and it's good conversations and it is what you do with it. And sometimes it's like, why are we talking about near misses? I wasn't expecting this to become a near-miss conversation, but you just hit on one of my very favorite topics, which is that I think what you've just explained is emblematic of, like, frankly, what I see is the lack of sophistication in the conversations around safety. And I think that largely comes from the fact that, I'm, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second, but as as the- uh, Come join me, mate. Come and join me on the soapbox. The sort of occupational risk management, as I would broadly term it, has, has existed as a profession since, let's say, late 60s, early 70s. OSHA kind of kicked off. We started to get up and running. And there was a whole lot of, of kind of low-hanging fruit to be gained by proceduralizing things. And, and let's, let's just start instituting workplace observations. Let's put in an incident investigation system. Like, it was bare bones. And I think what we're seeing today, and, and this is a tremendous example of it, is that we, we've never evolved the metrics beyond that by simply saying are and and those metrics of counting near misses is simply a count of are we doing anything are we doing paperwork it's just a count of paperwork yeah, yeah. It's, it's not an indicator for safety whatsoever that's where i think there's like this intellectual dishonesty on the part of i would say a significant portion of i would say just 
all corporate entities writ large in that we all know you go to a work site and I come from an operational background, like half of the things we were doing for safety were completely pointless. I, I, I had a, a particular moment of, um, let's say, civil disobedience where I was responsible for safety on this kind of offshore oil and gas site. And one of, our, one of the uh, things that I was required to do was a weekly photo-based report where I would submit a certain amount of photos, at least three photos of safety issues, and then photos of the resolutions, which is like, I think, good in theory. But at a certain point, it became like purely an ex- You just had to tick the box. Yeah, And so I started doing them, but just not submitting them. And I went several months before anybody said, where's that report? And I was like, you're clearly not looking at it. Like, what is this meant to be doing? You've just explained in this context where you've got a bunch of very obvious omissions from a like common sense risk management perspective, but this, let's say myopic focus on, hey, let's, let's all call out that we have a few near misses in our daily meetings. Like this is quintessential case of failing to measure what matters. If they're simply measuring, oh, we're safe because we reported six near misses in our daily meeting. We've ticked that box with never having a dialogue around what is that meant to, meant to achieve? Um, you know, what might be a more interesting metric is what's our ratio of near misses that lead to action or are closed? Because that would actually require somebody to do either close it, you know, disregard this near miss. It was, you know, reported an error or we're going to do something about it. That would force someone to, on some sort of regular basis, review the near misses and decide what we're going to do about them. But nobody ever measures these things or, or very rarely. And, and, and there's no discussion of how are we, how are we taking these great starter places for conversations and measuring the way that they change outcomes in our organization. That's, to me, what's so much more interesting to be discussing as, you know, hey, we get 6,000 or six near misses reported and we have a 100% closure rate. And if you want to see the way we close all these, it's public within our organization to all the employees who submit them. If you showed me you were doing that, I'd say you guys are on top of things. But if you're simply saying we've got 6,000 near misses and we haven't done anything with it, to me, I, I would have a lot of a lot of questions to just simply say, where, where's the rest of the data to, to prove that this is actually leading to, to changes right. and outcomes? Ultimately, like, you can fit all that system as well. Like, you know, to, okay. to your example, you had to take a photo of the problem and then a photo of the solution as well. And it still didn't mean anything. So, like, you were being measured on closing that issue out, and it still didn't mean anything. And I've been at companies where we measure the closeout, and it still didn't mean anything because the closeouts were just bollocks. But ultimately, it's just like, it's not like sitting there in this position of naivety. It's like, it comes back to that point. It's that testable, tangible confidence. Like, you know, it, oh, they're all closed out. Okay, but, like, you're confident in that I can go on the shop floor and you can go on the shop floor. And and what you see in your boardroom, in your dashboards, on your systems, et cetera, is reality. Like the academics call it workers done, workers imagined. Like that's where we're trying to get to. And I think there's one, there's one simple, simple way to get a really good insight of workers done, workers imagined. Well, actually, it's not simple because it depends on psychological safety and a culture and stuff, but just fucking talking to people, just getting off your ass at the boardroom, at your nice corner office, whatever it is, get on the shop floor, open your eyes and talk to people, you know, go up to people and say, what, what's, what is frustrating today? What's frustrating you today? Yeah. 
how's work today? They will tell you. Yeah, if you've built up an, a, you know, a, a culture in which they feel comfortable to tell you, if they don't feel comfortable to tell you, then you need to look at yourself and how you're dealing with people. But, but that aside, like, let's assume that they are comfortable to tell you. They will tell you 100%. And their response will be such a good insight, such a good insight into how they see safety, how they manage safety, and, and so on and so forth. But you could go to this company that I was referring to, and you could read their papers and read their systems. I think they're a really safe company because near misses were being dealt with. They're being reported. They're being dealt with. It's in the conversation. Safety is at the top of the agenda. Really plush looking, sexy ass policy, loads of risk assessments, loads of SOPs. And then go on a shop floor and see the real world. You've got unguarded machines left, right, and center. Wouldn't pass CE marking. There's massive drainage issues on site, like huge traffic issues, like. I mean, I could go on all day. P- staff didn't even have PPE, like e-stops not working. So it getting on the shop floor and looking and seeing, you know, like Sherlock Holmes says, is like you look but you don't see or something like that. That That is literally the best way to, to get these signals is to just go and look. When you say that, is this ultimately a fidelity issue? Is it a... You know, when you talk about going to the shop floor, is that is that because that's a great way to get a, a wide funnel of of information? Because I think that is like I would absolutely agree with you. You know, when I used to be chief officer on deep water construction vessels, like one of the primary things you do, because again, you're you know, you sit on the bridge, you're drinking your coffee, looking at the window, you might mm. feel like everything's going well, but you gotta go put your coveralls on and go walk around and, and that's what's gonna give you the best kind of feel yeah. for what's happening. I feel like the challenge with that, because it is such a powerful tool, is that it relies on the competence or or what have you of the person doing that walk oh, around. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, and so it becomes challenging to endorse as like a a fix all because it, it won't work if your people are crap. There is no fix all. There is no silver bullet whatsoever. Like near misses are not shit. They're just mostly used shit. Like, so near misses could potentially work really well. Incident reporting could potentially work really well. Like all of that stuff, it works. It's just, you have to go have that conversation to say, is this delivering value? So like, I, again, I was, I was at a different company with a meeting the other day, the, the, the company with the lift plans, and, and they had all of this beautiful stuff in the systems. And I said, how much do you talk to your staff? And they were like, all oh, the time we do this meeting, that meeting, this meeting, that meeting, this meeting. And I, we were really drilling down. I knew what was going on, but we were trying to like really drill in and get them to say it. And finally, we got to the point where they went, do you know what, James? I don't think we're having conversations with our staff. I think we're just telling them stuff. And I was like, yes, right. Let's talk about that. Why do you think that? And I was like, well, I'm just thinking now, like this meeting and that meeting and this meeting, this meeting, this meeting is safety going. These are the stats. This is where we are. This, uh, this meeting here is the supervisor saying, this is the plan for the day. I don't think once any, any one of us in the SMT are going to the shop floor and saying, what do you think about this? Unless it's in a really formal process, like a survey. And I was like, exactly. You're disseminating information, which you need to do. It's not one or the other. You're disseminating information, but that feedback loop doesn't exist. You're not having conversations. So it's not, it's not get rid of near misses. It's just do them better. Well, I, I 
don't like near misses personally. I like signals and, and just a different language. But ultimately, if I went to a customer and they were like doing near misses and it worked, it delivered value and I could see it and it was tangible, then keep it, man. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, if it works, it yeah. works. I ain't broke, don't fix it. I, I think we're seeing the same thing. But I think maybe, and again, I'm we're just soapboxing at this point. I think mm-hmm. what, what's been so... For me, so coming from that background, that kind of operation, let's sit down, let's like, let go have a coffee with the guys and see what's going on here. I think for me now working in, let's say like the venture back tech space, that's like a, a very different world in a way that I find very intellectually inspiring because it's such a different way of handling problems. And I mm-hmm. feel like when I, when I talk about fidelity, what I'm talking about is that, that piece that you've said, which is like saying, if it works. And I guess what I'm saying or where, where I see this huge opportunity and I don't know what the solution is, don't get me wrong, but it's around saying, if I was looking at marketing for our company, for example, and I solely looked at how many people come to our website as the measurement of our marketing success, it's obvious in the ways that that, that could give me like a, an insufficient picture of what's happening. So instead, what we do is we, institu- we understand, you know, who are the people who we've reached out to via email? Have they visited our website? Have they then, have they watched a video of a product demo and then have they filled out a product form? Well, that's actually going to give me a little bit more fidelity on the intent of this user. And it helps Mm -hmm. me say, oh, this is worth me having a meeting with this person. Or if I have somebody who visits my website and then says, hey, I'm here to offer you outsourced IT services. I'm going to say like, well, this is like a low quality uh, meeting request and and I'm not going to do that. And I, I think that's where I see... Do, am I saying we don't need to go and have coffees with people and ask them how it's going? Absolutely not. But I think there's so much opportunity to have a conversation around saying, could we agree on near misses as an example, but you could do this with anything. What are the, not what's that one metric of quantity of submissions, but how do we make a dozen metrics that we could find a way to programmatically kind of pull in so that we know the, like if it's working in a way that we can measure and then in a way that we can help get better in the future. And I think that yeah. that's like th- that sophistication there, every other industry in the world is doing this Yeah. and, and safety is still talking about like, well, it's not about near misses. It's about behavior-based observations. And it's like, <laughs> we're ha- we're talking about the icing and we're not talking about the cake. There, yeah. All of these things are starters for conversation, but unless we establish sort of an agreed upon metric of measurement, it's it's all just hot air. It's like, what's the flavor of the week? We'll institute that. And then we'll wonder why, oh, we had no incidents last year. Two people lost limbs this year. Must have just been COVID. Uh, that, that's kind of the... Uh... <laughs> yeah, that's so true. One of the things that you're, you're touching on here is so important is what we don't do in safety is actually stress test. Like we don't... Yeah. Think. When, we, when we say we're going to do an audit, all, all we're doing is counting paperwork. Now, you might say, oh, you know, there'll be people listening to this and go, oh, that's just a bad auditor. That's just a bad auditor. But, like, it's not. That is what an audit is. An audit is a systems process. But, like, actually testing if things work. So, like, you could do two drills a year for your fire of a, a emergency, for your emergency evacuation, right? You could do 10 drills a year. Right. But unless in that process you're learning and adjusting and improving, then it's not going to matter. So if you're just drilling, you're like, oh, it's another drill. Here we go. We're not achieving anything. So yeah. 
I mean, it's fascinating when we come back to the thing you said ages ago, which has just reminded me, where you said about the kind of cognitive dissonance, and this is the, the kind of the same thing as back around again, is I actually made a video around emergency evacuation, right? I read a academic paper a long ago, a long time ago. It was given to me by a gentleman in Tynaware Fire Service, which is a very big fire service in the UK, right? And for life of me, I can't find this paper ever again, which one day I will bloody find it, right? But this paper basically said, very long and short, is that there's no evidence that a surprise fire drill or emergency drill has any benefits, but there is lots of evidence that say it doesn't have, it has negative impacts. So therefore we advise that you should do planned emer emergency drills so everyone knows about it, right? So when you start breaking it down and you read into it, you're like, shit, that makes a lot of sense. So like when you do loads of surprise drills, what is the, what is the biggest problem when the fire alarm goes off in your office, Joe? What's the biggest problem? Guarantee it's everyone going, is it a drill? Yeah. Is it a drill? What day is it? What day is it? Is it Monday? We test the alarm on Monday, isn't it? What's, yeah, but he, he did that, didn't he? You know, what's it? Sheila, 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 is it a drill? Like, and like 10 minutes fucking later, you know, I've had people walk from one end of a hospital to the other end of the hospital to find the safety person to say, is it a drill? And I'm like, it's like a two mile hospital. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So not having it surprised solves that problem to a point, right? In that if they are surprised, they're like, we haven't been told it's a drill, therefore it's a fire. Now, the military do this all the time. This is not a drill. This is not a drill, right? So that, oh my God, this is serious. We're actually under fire. We don't do that in safety. We're like, is it a drill? Is it not? Oh, because I'm safety and I'm oh, that's, that's the control I have, right? So I made a video and I said, this is backed up by not only academia, a very large city-based metropolitan fire service, the London Fire Service, which is commonly kind of like the guru of, of safety, fire safety in the UK, and then the actual guru of fire safety, the National Fire Chiefs Council, had backed this up as well. So potentially the four biggest bodies in fire safety in the UK had backed this approach. So I made a video, told everyone about it, right? And I had somebody message me who runs a hospital, and I've got loads of experience in the NHS. He runs a hospital, and he was like, oh, no, nah, I don't agree with that. How can, you, how can you fucking not agree with it? Like, the fire service back it. Like, do you need any more? Like, that's like going to Lewis Hamilton, and Lewis Hamilton's like, this is how you drive a Formula 1 car, and you're going, nah, don't back that, mate. Just, I don't care whether you back it. It's the actual way to do it. It's stress tested. It's proved in academia. It's actually how we need to move forward. So we don't actually test, to bring back to my original point and close this out, we don't test if this things actually, these things are actually delivering value. We just audit them. How many drills have you done this year? Two. Well done. You're yep. compliant. You're not compliant because if they don't get people out of the fucking building, they're not compliant at all because people will die and you will go to court. Yeah. See, if you're not stress testing it, you're just counting paperwork. I think this just comes down to like what I would broadly term the engineering mindset, like break down a problem, execute a test, mm -hmm. iterate, keep those yeah. tests short and keep like that to, to me, that is the fundamental notion of being a performative person in literally any role yeah. is can you break down the problems that you're facing and run tests against them so that you can, sort of demonstrably and incrementally make progress against that solution. And I think that's what, again, as I've dug deeper and deeper into this problem, it's what you say, like, 
it can sometimes be frustrating because you have all these, like, again, it, it, it's this extremely surface level conversation where you mm -hmm. say, oh, how, how do you back this up? What, why do you think instituting a behavior-based safety program at your company is going to drive value? It's like, oh, I read a cool blog post. I'm like, <laughs> okay. So they, like, it, do you feel as though people don't feel empowered to, to call people out when they see unsafe behaviors? Do you think that people aren't you know, mindful enough to be taking those moments to take a break and, and point something out? And yeah. if that's not the case, what evidence do you have to support that that particular set of tooling is the solution for the problems that you're facing? And again, to me, and maybe this is just me as a, a bit of a dork, but, but to me, this just goes down to the fidelity of without increasing what we measure fundamentally and, and getting away from, I think, as you said, like, I know there's a lot of strong feelings around measurement and safety, but it's because like what we're measuring is, is because so well, you don't really know what to measure. Like we, we, yeah. we as a profession don't really know what indicates good safety. And, and most and, and professionals so won't admit that they'll go, well, yeah, we don't have any accidents. And then, then we're obviously safe. Cause you know, but yeah, but there, there is academia that backs that that's not, that is not tied to the presence of safety. Well, I don't believe in that academia. Oh, fucking hell. Like, what do you want me to do then? Yeah. Like, a thousand percent. And, and so if we're not going in and saying, hey, what, in, in that case, oh, we don't have incidents. So what are the, how do we understand the broader, like pre-incident environment of safety in a way that helps us understand, oh, we truly are being safe. And it's not just that we've created so much pressure by taking aerial photos of people organized into a big number of how many million LTI hours we have without an incident that we've created so much cultural pressure that people could cut their legs off. They're going to say they did it at home because nobody's going to be that person who breaks that thing. And because we, we, we don't have that fidelity, or again, this is, this is my soapbox, but because we're not understanding what's that, what are those pieces? It's all just heretical. It's anecdotal. How do, how do we understand what's, what's working and what's not? And, and to me, that's the most exciting part is how do, if, if we were able to start that and you could start it in a really narrow way, let's like some a workplace observation program or a, a work permit program, like what's something broad and like how, what, what's the smallest thing you could implement and test and then do that everywhere and, and learn from that. I'm so excited for the way, the way those conversations could evolve in the future and, and get away from I'm this type of safety person or I'm this type of safety person and get to a place where we say, hey, you know, in the same way, if I'm a marketer, there's like some standard metrics I could look at and know if I'm marketing successfully. Those exist in safety, but it's like we're, we're looking the other way on that stuff. Let's just look at our TRIR and hope for the best. And we also have to like get to a, like not not to defend the profession because I agree with everything that, that you say, but like the in the UK, the biggest bodies that represent us as a profession don't back that academic. Like statistics academia that says statistically TRIRs, they're invalid. They don't make any statistical sense sense whatsoever. It, and essentially, why don't they make sense? Because not enough people die. So we don't have enough people dying to work out whether that statistically is valid or not. Therefore, it's a waste of time. All right. We know that accidents, counting accidents is not an indicator for the presence of safety. It is an indicator that you've got a problem that you need to look at 100%. But a absence of negativity isn't a presence of positivity. So I really like Eric's. Uh, what Eric says is that you wouldn't try and work out how to get a good marriage marriage by only looking at divorce which is just one of my favorite lines ever when you say that to people are like 
shit, that makes so much sense. Like, and all we're saying is keep looking at divorce because we need to learn about how not to do it, but also look at the good marriages as well. And that's all we're saying in safety. That's all I'm saying is that carry on doing that shit if you want to do it, right? But let's look at what's actually happened. Let's look at the presence of good. Where is the presence of good? So what does the presence of good look like? It's the shop floor having conversations like that lift plan example. I want to go to a person who's lifting tons and tons and tons of bits of care and i want them to turn around and say safety on this place yeah that's well i don't know if you call it safety it's just kind of my job like when i'm lifting i'm looking at the chains i know that the chain's been inspected because it's got this color coding i look i know how to look at it myself you know i know to i always think about my route and i always do like i want to have that conversation with them not the safety team that to me is a presence of positive that to me is a good indication of good safety. Does it mean you'll never have a big incident in your in, in the company ever? No. But what it does mean is you're much less likely to have it. You're building resilience. It's not one or the other, it's both. And that's why I struggle when people go, so what do you do, James? Do you do the cultural stuff or the technical stuff? And I'm like, well, it depends where you are in your journey because this company I'm working with at the moment that's really shit at both, it's both. I'm doing both simultaneously because we've got technical stuff. I'm one day I'm I'm looking at machine and I'm like, right, with the engineer, and I'm like, I need a guard there, I need a guard there, and I need a guard there. This is why. Like, what do you think? Do you agree with? I'm having an engaging conversation with him. And so it's an educational opportunity because I want him to spot that next time. Right. Then the next day, I'm with the same company and I'm having a much more cultural, leadership, behavioral type conversation with the CEO to find out how the fuck we got into this position, <laughs> right? And how he behaves with his, with his team and, and how did he not know that this stuff was happening? That's the cultural resilience, safety to whatever you want to call it stuff. It's one and two at the same time, not one or the other. What you've just explained here is what like in statistics, like the Bayesian statistics, as in you're looking at triggers yeah, to circle yeah. back and make corrections, that this is, I think that that sophistication piece that like here, you wanna, you need to learn as much from the tasks that are completed safely as a way to reinforce the guidance you provide that works as you need to go back and correct the guidance you provide when you have an incident. Like to me, that that's the fundamental value of, of an incident reporting system is as, to act as a trigger to create a correction against your system. And again, if that's, I, I like your uh, divorce quote here. If that's right. the only thing you're using to learn from, if you're, hey, let's pull all the documents that these people created before they went to work and then let's institute a new one. Then again, I think we're we're going to lose the plot it's, a little bit. And it's uh, so funny yeah, as well. It's cultural. It's technical. It's everything, as you yeah. said. And, and it's funny that in safety, it's like the only thing that we that we just look at the negatives. Like Joe, you're an entrepreneur, right? Here's a load of books on failed entrepreneurs. Like you just wouldn't read loads of books of companies that have just gone shit. Would you like I'd read one or two? I mean, there would be a lot to learn in there, but yeah, you uh, you would 100% read the odd one or two and you would educate yourself on how not to do it. But a lot yeah. of your time will be reading about jobs and gates and you know, you know, I don't know, Simon Sinek or whatever, you know, be reading all of this stuff on how to be better. Well, in safety, we just have within 
I think the conversations are getting better. I think a lot of these really annoying, bickering conversations that we are having that are a bit icing on the cake, they're a little bit high level. I think that's a it's a necessary step in the journey because we're having better conversations. Yeah. Or, you know, and, and this is literally why we made PM Project Malitium that I mentioned is the other company I run with my business partner, so that we could have these com- we talk, we have conversations like this on a Wednesday and a Friday every week with directors of some of the biggest brands in the UK and an island as well. And some professionals that work for companies that you've never heard of and you never will hear of because they're, they're small or they're sneaky or whatever. And then some people that are not even safety professionals, they're scaffolders that want to be a safety professional. Right. But we're in this lovely, diverse little group and we, we have conversations. So we'll be like, let's talk about near misses people. Right. I want to talk about near misses and we'll have this conversation and do we have the high level conversation about what even is it? Yeah, we do 100%. But I think it's an indicator that we're having better conversations because when I started the podcast, I know I want to talk about this because we are sitting pretty. We think we're fine in the UK. We've accepted that we kill about 140 people a year and we're just okay with that. Like that's cool. Off we go. And I was working for this company the other day doing that, that lift plan stuff. And the, the, one of the reasons we were in there is because somebody lost the top of their finger. And they were like, we're a really safe company. Um, and I was like, okay, define safe. Like, why do you think you're a safe company? Well, ultimately, we, we don't really have, you know, a lot of accidents, right? So ultimately, I want to see what you guys can do can reduce accidents. Okay, let's let's play with that for a second. Prior to us coming in off the back of the series of, of a few accidents, you went like six years without an LTI, right? And they were like, yeah, yeah, it was really good. I was like, okay, cool. And you use that to justify that you were safe. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, the guy lost his finger. Yeah. So I don't think the guy that lost his finger or top of his finger would agree that you're a safe company. Do you think he would agree? Let's bring him in the room and ask him and say, hey, four and a half finger man, do you think that this is a safe company? I don't think he'll agree. I really don't think he'll agree. So are you willing to have that conversation in that we need to go deeper with this. And I think to start that conversation, we have to have those high-level, annoying, bickery conversations, which I equally, Joe, get so frustrated by. And I'm like, can we just fucking move past this now and move on to, like, some valuable conversation? But I think it's part of the journey. I don't don't know. I might be wrong. I might be wrong. I think you're totally right because I think it's how we're sussing out this dissatisfaction. And I think you hit on this earlier where you said, I I think to a certain extent, it's become a limiting factor around the regulators and saying, well, they only care about TRIR. So we're we're kind of hamstrung. And I think what, what I'm so excited about here is that it's through you know, this increase in dialogue through podcasts like yours and and to a certain extent, what we're trying to do here is that we're trying to kind of arm the rebels and say all these safety professionals who think they're doing things differently, who say we're trying to get rid of all the fluff and focus on what matters. And I talk to so many who say we do things different here. And I kind of chuckle to myself because I say that every single person says that, but there's this kind of fundamental belief that everybody else is kind of doing things the old way. And, And I think if we can if we can elevate that conversation and get people more focused on, on what are those things we could do to, yeah. to quantifiably improve, the regulators will follow us. We can't wait for them to lead us there. We need to elevate this conversation to say compliance is not 
the, the end goal, compliance is the starting place. We need to focus on excellence and let's define what that is so we can get there as quick as possible. There's, there's something you said there, Joe, which I want to echo that. The regulator follows the people. And we all think that we follow the regulator. Like, no, 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 no. The community, we, we think we have no power. Like, and, and we think that we just wait until they do as we're told, right? We have never had it sounds like i'm becoming a bit of a socialist now right but like we have never had more power than we have right now i don't know i'm not an economist or a socialist or anything like that but i feel like russia is losing the war because of social media right not because of anything else because the world has come together right and then let's use a little bit of a less controversial example that i know nothing about <laughs> I, I might be wrong there if someone's like what the fuck is he talking about and they would be very fair to say what is he talking about a better example would be and i've used this several times is barack obama in america when he was a president he was when he was a president when he was first president he was asked about gay marriage do you support it right he outright said no in one of his interviews, he said, no, I don't support it, right? But yet he was a president that legalized gay marriage. What? So when did he change? We all just assumed that he was always this, like, really kind of this, this social kind of left, whatever person, whatever you want to label that as, right? And he'd done this amazing thing by legalizing gay marriage. So, so finally, so he should, like, finally, Jesus Christ. But we get to that point. Oh, you hang on a minute. You're telling me he wasn't always like this? So when did he change? He changed when the fucking polls changed. When the polls changed and the polls said, you need to legalize gay marriage because that's how you're going to get more votes and win and stay next time, that's when he changed. That is such a good story to say, if you're not happy with how the regulator is operating then you need to start showing the regulator better ways yeah. to do it. As long as, in the UK, we have really nice legislation that just says, just manage the risk as far as reasonable and practicable. Essentially, here's some guidance to say, this is how we think it's the best way to do it. But otherwise, you do it another way. As long as you can prove to us that you think you're doing that and we agree with you, we don't really give a shit. So like, we've got these We've got, I've been talking about this for so long. We got two pieces of academic research completed. Were they both in the UK? Yeah, both in the UK. One by Aberdeen University that's just come out recently. It's gone a bit viral recently that says lift with a straight back and bent knees is not good advice. And then another piece that says manual handling training is not effective, right? It doesn't, doesn't improve lifting technique or anything like that so that one says you're better off doing strength and conditioning training with your staff and the other one says we're better off have being more educated about how our spine is each person and stuff like that so we've got two now two pieces of academia one of those pieces of academia were, were written by the regulators science department and yet we're still delivering manual handed training and the, the regulator will still ask you for manual handling training okay so deliver manual handling training but change it Let's, let's just call it manual handling training because that's what they want. But let's talk about strength and conditioning. Let's talk about learning about your spine. Let's talk about how you can work out how you can lift better. Because we do that, the regulator goes, oh, that's really nice. I like that. They'll tell someone else about it. Start a fucking podcast about it. Right? Do a YouTube video about it. Get viral on LinkedIn and loads of people will start doing it and boom. We change the guidance. We change the regulator, whatever. 
there's maybe a step between that, which is that if you're also focusing on, and, and again, this is, I don't mean to always harp on, on measurement, but I actually think that that's how we, we lead to meaningful change is that if you can demonstrably or show that, that, Hey, we did, we made this change and outcomes changed accordingly. You've all of a sudden in a you know scientific, rational way with clear supporting data created a moral obligation for, for the broader industry to say, we have to look the way the regulation is, is even written. If that's the best way to do it, that's where you're, you're going to be expected to do. So what's yeah. going to happen is your keen competitors will follow you. The rest of them will follow you as soon as your clients start to demand it because you've set that standard. And as once enough of them do it, the regulators will follow. But I think, again, there's, I think you're absolutely right there. People have so much more power to, to go back to your original, uh, socialist point here that people have so much more power than they realize. And I think that's so inspiring, right? If we were able to come in and, and really say, how do we define what the best thing is? How do we document it? And how do we share it? And I think, you know, in, in many ways, that's what these conversations are, are, are trying to achieve. Yeah. And, and the more of them we have for more people, like people find it really strange that I do a podcast in safety, which is quite niche. And I encourage more people to do more podcasts in safety. Like, oh, James, you're not adding your competition. No, we need more to, more people having conversations. I don't give a shit if you've got all the exact same guests as me, because it would still be a slightly different conversation. And there's people who hate listening to me and they don't. Or maybe they're like, oh, I listen to him because there's just no one else in the UK or whatever, right? But they do it through grit and teeth because they just hate my accent or the fact that I swear or whatever. I don't know, right? But somebody else, Bob, down the road from me starts, right? And he doesn't swear and he, he's very calm and not energetic and ranty like I am. Then you might like that person. And do you know what? That's okay. Like, please go listen to that person because he's having the same good conversations that I'm having, but in a different manner that works for you. More people need to be having these conversations, whether we find them, whether we find them uncomfortable or not whether we find them a little bit bickery at first or not, like it doesn't matter. Let's just have more conversations about how can we get better at doing this. That's a great place for us to start wrapping this up. I feel like this is maybe part one. I feel like we could probably do this for a little while. We do like um, part but, three, four, five, six, seven. Uh, yeah, I could go about this all day. need to do a mini series. But before we wrap things up here, uh, one of the things I, I like to ask wherever possible is, uh, and, and this is particularly relevant for, for yourself, who else should we have on the show? Anyone, you know, maybe a practitioner in, in a company that you work with or something like that, that you think could come in and, and share some real sort of actionable strategies and tactics for, for our audience? I can give you a very long list, if I'm honest, a very long list. So a few people come to mind. A lady called Crystal Danbury. She is the director of safety and something else at Sainsbury's in the UK. Very amazing woman. Amazing woman. Oh, God, you know what? I could, lift, I could list all of my members at Project Millennium. They're all amazing. I'm just trying to think of ones that would come on. Elisa Lynch, she will hate the fact that I've told you to, to talk to her, but she, uh, safety manager, I think, or safety head, head of safety for a construction company in Ireland. She's done a couple of podcasts. She's awesome. I love her. She swears more than me. So just FYI, she's Irish. So they all like that. Yeah. She's amazing. My business partner, Colin Nottage, from, he, he does another podcast called Interesting Health and Safety Podcast. He's a consultant, same as I am. So he's kind of, I don't want to say old, that's not fair, but like he's older. So like he's, he's like, he's been in the game for a, for a long time. 
you know, I remember when I first met him and I, I've told him this, like when I first met him, I was like, it's just another old safety guy that doesn't know what he's talking about. And then I was like, oh, actually, this guy's pretty cool. And now I now I run a business with him. So like, he's amazing. We might, David, we might have to cut that out for, for his benefit here. I'll, we'll, we'll share that with the editor. So can, loads uh, worse than old. You can leave that in. Okay. He kills me worse as well. And then probably David Provan is, is a very impressive man in safety who's both, both an academic and a practitioner which i really like so he runs a podcast with drew ray called the safety of work podcast so he's a very very prominent and good safety thought leader so you ask for one you got like five there you go all right well val um, on the production side she's got her homework to do awesome so i guess james obviously thanks thanks so much for for coming through how can people you know find more of your stuff if, if they want to check out all your uh, awesome projects the easiest way is you can Google rebranding safety as in we're rebranding the company, rebranding safety and the YouTube and the podcast will come up. If you want to listen to podcasts, it's available on pretty much all the platforms, which I was just reading a blog just as we joined this, which I think all of them are owned by Spotify now other than Apple, like they're just buying them all. So yeah, Spotify, Chatable, all of those, we are on all of those. So just Google rebranding safety. You can go to rebrandingsafety.com. There's not much on there, but you can go to there if you want. If you want consultancy, we do work primarily in the UK. We are 100% open to talking internationally as well, but that is risk fluent. So risk fluent as in fluent as in the language, riskfluent.com. Or you can just find me on LinkedIn. I'm most prominent on LinkedIn. So James McPherson on LinkedIn. I'm on there all day, if I'm honest, all bloody day. If you're a safety professional, then Project Miletium, which is really hard to spell, and we didn't think that through when we thought of the name, but I shall send Joe the link, but it's Project Miletium, which is M-O-L-L-I-T-I-A-M.com. So that's if you're a safety professional and you're looking for like a mastermind professional development community, 100%, you will love that. We have conversations like this all the time, all the time. Okay. That's everything, mate. Thank you very Fantastic. much. We'll, we'll make sure that that all those links uh, end up in the show notes if anybody wants to check those out. And uh, I, again, I guess, yeah, thanks so much for, for coming on. Looking forward to parts, you know, two through 15, whenever we can make those happen. Sure thing. Thank right. you for having me. Thanks for listening to Safety Leaders Now with Joe Meadows. This show is presented to you by OpsLog and produced by me, Valeria Carnau. Big thanks to Diala for the theme music and Hatch for editing the podcast. Our next episode comes out in a week. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to Safety Leaders Now on any platform that you stream podcasts. If you want to connect with Joe, don't hesitate to reach out to him on LinkedIn at Joe Meadows. Thanks for listening. Catch you on the next episode. Okay, peeps, hope you enjoyed that conversation between me and Joe. Hope that it delivered some value, ironically, because we were talking about getting value out of your systems, essentially. Um, we kind of bounced around a load of, all over the place, but essentially I pulled out that core, I think I pulled out that core message that uh, what I'm trying to say is it doesn't matter what the system is as long as it's delivering some value. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got some value out of it. I hope there's something you can take away from that and work towards in your workplace. Don't forget to check out Project Miletium um, if you're looking for a mastermind community to help your professional development. And don't forget to check out 
us if you want to work with us. We are culture change, technical safety, whatever you're looking for. I'm sure we either know someone that can do it or can do it for you. So come and check out. Uh, even if you just want a bit of a chat, we, you know what we're like over here. We're mega laid back. If you want to come on the podcast, let us know as well. Don't forget to follow me on LinkedIn and don't forget to follow the other social media platforms as well. I'll catch you next week. Safe. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.